0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, UFO invading fleet exhibits normal flight dynamics to fool everyone into thinking it's a hoax. Mass market paperbacks burst from the corral. It's a Stampede, plus we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour Podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a best of compilation from some previous episodes to remind you of the great Bain books that have appeared in. The last swing around the day star. So stay tuned for that. Should be fun. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news We have a June hard science fiction ebook sale you should check out. Inspired by real science, gritty, realistic. That's hard science fiction. To celebrate the awe-inspiring, wonder-producing hard science fiction of Great Bane authors such as Patrick Childs, Travis S. Taylor, and of course Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes, here are some amazing ebook discount selections for June. We have $2 off on Frozen Orbit by Patrick Chiles. We have $2 off Battle Luna by Travis S. Taylor, Timothy Zahn, Michael Z. Williamson, Casey E. Zell, and Josh Hayes. And we have a $2 off special on The Legacy of Herod by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. Plus $1 off on a huge selection of hard science fiction ebooks, including titles by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, Patrick Childs, Travis S. Taylor, and more. Check out all the discounts at the Bain website but the discount supply wherever Bain eBooks are sold. The June hard science fiction eBook sale where gravity makes things falls. The speed of light is an actual speed limit and eBook discount supply wherever Bane eBooks are sold. Hey, the June mass market paperbacks are at booksellers and looking frisky. First out of the corral is 1636, the Atlantic encounter by Eric Flint and Walter H Hunt. With the colonization of the North American continent came chattel slavery and the extermination of a native population. But now in a changed 1636, the newly formed United States of Europe has a chance to make right history's misdeeds. Also in June is Battle Luna by Travis S. Taylor, Michael Z. Williamson, Casey Ezell, and Josh Hayes. The Lunar Colony is a minor colony with only internal security capabilities as we began. But now something has been discovered. Something has been uncovered. On the moon, something important. The lunar colonists perceive this great discovery as their own, but so do the governments of Earth. There's only one solution. Battle Luna. Also out in June, in paperback, is The Legacy of Herod by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. The 200 colonists on board the settling ship geographic have spent a century in cold sleep to arrive at Avalon, a lush verdant planet light years from earth. They hope to establish a permanent colony and Avalon seems the perfect place. And so they set about planting and building but their very presence has upset the ecology of Avalon. Soon an implacable predator stalks them in order to defeat this alien enemy. They must reevaluate and retrench what it means to settle a world. The Legacy of Herod by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. Battle Luna by Travis S. Taylor, Timothy Zahn, Michael Z. Williamson, Casey Ezel, and Josh Hayes, and 1636, The Atlantic Encounter by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt are all available now as mass market paperbacks at booksellers everywhere. (music) First up, we have for you Orson Scott Card from an interview we did with him in December that was a tribute to the late, great Ben Bova. Scott Card talks about his relationship with Ben Bova, who really started and maintained his early career and made it possible for him to become one of the best-selling science fiction writers of all time. Here's Orson Scott Card on Ben Bova.
2: What I found with Ben is that no conversation would die if Ben was at the table. He would never leave you dangling as the last person who spoke. And as if what you said was so stupid, nobody could think of anything to say. He always had something gracious to say, but it wasn't like he drove the conversation like he was always leaping in. He never listened as if he was just trying to think of what he would say next. Quite the contrary unless you said something just outrageously stupid, uh, in which case he would cut in at a reasonable time and then kindly point out just exactly how stupid your idea was. Not you, but your idea, why it wouldn't work, why this was not valid was not possible. And it was educational and never offensive because he was a kind and gracious man.
1: And he made you feel like you were the center of his attention in that moment. Yeah. He was paying attention to you and listening to you in a way. So many people don't have that ability.
2: No. It's one of the things I learned about signings. So many authors are introverts. It's, you know, who, who sits alone and types for hour after hour? Somebody who doesn't need to be talking to people all the time. And so I've seen many an author doing a signing where they just look down at the paper, never look up at the people. And they just sign, sign, sign. And I just think, why are you doing this? This is your chance to meet your readers. And so I made it a rule to kind of be like Ben. And I look them in the eye and I make conversation with them and, and uh, not long, but I give them a smile that's a real smile. And, uh, and, you know, I use my acting training so that even when I don't feel like smiling, when I'm exhausted, they still get the full smile that gets all the way to my eyes because that's what they're there for. They don't care about me signing the book. They care about meeting the author. And the worst thing is they don't really want to meet me. What they want to meet is Ender Wigan and I'm not him. Yeah. And so you or, know <laughs> or, or Alvin, yeah. Whoever but, they believe love. believe me, it's it's most it's mostly Ender. It's mostly, um I but see. but see Ben Ben was an example to me that The few times that we were together, now this is the odd thing. His wife was my agent. And that first meal that we had together, I wasn't the focus. Go ahead.
1: Sorry.
2: Uh, No, I wasn't the complete focus of the conversation. She was. Because he couldn't take his eyes off her. They hadn't been married long. And they were developing all these, here's looking at you, here's mud in your eye toasts with the various drinks they were having, something completely outside my experience as a Mormon. Uh, and so I had no idea what it, I still have no idea what it means when a character orders a Pinot Noir or a uh, Cabernet. have no idea what that
1: would imply. It's like uh, Mountain Dew mixed with, uh, you know. cool Yeah, wine. don't bother, <laughs> don't bother
2: telling me, I won't remember. I know that that a screwdriver has vodka and orange juice. That's about my, the extent of my knowledge. I was and trying to so, come up with
1: a Mormon analogy. That's yeah. Little... Anyway, <laughs> we, don't,
2: we don't drink yeah. Mountain Dew. It, it has to get too much caffeine. Anyway, okay. uh, <laughs> I'm not, that's not a rule of the church. That's just a custom. But uh, anyway, the, the thing that I was aware of was he really loved Barbara and believed in her, but he believed in me so much that he thought it was important to get me as one of her first clients because he thought I had a future. And she did too. She had read uh, the stories that I had sent him and was ready to give me stuff. Now, here's the thing. Ben also was my first book publisher, my first book editor, because he had a deal with um, I forgot the baronet, a new trade paper house uh, that was starting out with science fiction. This was before Tom Doherty had started a new mass market paper house with science fiction. So nobody thought it could be done, but the editor there thought it thought it would, and so he made a deal with Ben to edit a line of science fiction. So Ben said to me, "Okay, um, do you have anything? These stories about these blue-eyed people?" Because by then he was seeing and publishing my uh, my uh, uh, Worthing stories. He said, "Is there a novel in that?" And it happened to be that that I had plans for one. I had a plot for one. And he "And, he, and what we did was, I sold two books to Baronet." Sight Unseen, I wrote nothing except that the stories existed. Uh, So I didn't even write a synopsis uh, of the book. There's about one novel and one collection of short stories. And uh, Sight Unseen. And then Ben was my editor on them. I turned them in. He published them. He edited, but but nothing major. And uh, so he was my first editor. And that was before... Uh, that that deal was made before Barbara was my agent. She would never have let me sign with Paranet as my agent because the money was too low and I had too little control. But they gave me two of the three worst covers I have ever had on any book of mine, uh, and so they were they were pulp magazine, pulp sci-fi magazine covers. But Ben didn't have any say over the covers. I think he wouldn't have gone that route. Um, and besides, they only illustrated scenes from my book, so it was my fault. If I didn't want that on the cover, I shouldn't have put the scene in my book. Um, but anyway, luridness was was the, the word of the day. So Ben was there. Well, those analog at the beginning of my career. were great that he did have uh, He absolutely, he absolutely did. He actually put my work together with a young artist named Janet Alessio. I have no idea if she's still doing art, if she's doing professional illustration, but she did gorgeous human art for the black black and white interiors uh, of my stories. I think the first time one she did for me was uh, the art that went with Michael Songbird. And I just, I loved, I have several of her originals that I bought and uh, I still think of her as one of the best illustrators that I ever worked with. And Ben is the one who found her for me. So he was taking care of me even though we didn't hang out. How would He, we hang he
1: accepted your first re- award, didn't he? Something like, uh, was it Australia, Worldcon? Uh,
2: no, no, no. My first award was the Campbell Award, and that was in F- in Phoenix, and I was there. You I there. accepted it in person. And the next two, uh, one was in Britain, and uh, of course there was the Nebula in San Francisco. So one was in Brighton, and the other one wasn't. Can't remember where it was. Anyway. Uh, but it wasn't Australia. I was present for those. But I think Ben may have accepted an award, the award for uh, the novella Songhouse. Or no, it was it was not that. It was anyway, a, a novella that I wrote um, in Australia. He might have done that for me because who else? Um, and so, uh, you know, he published the, uh, the original. Um, anyway, it, he he was watching out for me. I had... Various social occasions, usually professionally oriented like the Nebula banquet or whatever, where I shared a table with him. He and Barbara arranged for me to sit with Bob Guccione at the Omni table. Uh, It was just Ben and Barbara and me and my wife and Bob and whoever he was with. Um, I dare not say wife because I have no idea anymore who she was, but uh, I also became aware of the guy standing nearby who looked like he could probably kill me if it, if he felt like it but uh didn't feel like it so he seemed cheerful enough but uh as ben explained to me he said now this guy when you sit down at the table don't ask about him you his meal will be taken care of at another time in another place but he carries all of bob's id and money bob carries nothing if you rob bob all you can get is his coat because his jacket because there's nothing Uh, this other guy carries it all, which I thought, wow, okay, that's both rich and paranoid. How wonderful. Uh, But certainly, uh, you know, I never followed that practice, but it was fun. Uh, You don't have a guy like
1: that now? No,
2: I don't. No. Well, actually, I married a woman like that. Uh, I I, I don't, I don't carry a checkbook. You've got to understand that was taken away from me very early, but I actually yielded it. I gave it. I said, please don't let me, don't make me carry this. Uh, I make too many arithmetic mistakes. So, um, Anyway, so Ben was there all through that time. I believed we were friends, and I think it's true, but we were friends in a certain category. I was never a hangout at a bar friend. How could I be? I didn't even go into bars. Uh, I was on panels at conventions. The programming was what I loved, and he didn't care much about that. Uh, So he was in the bar talking to people making contacts, being a good editor, doing all those things, and seeing his friends uh, from the field. And I wasn't in that group ever. And so uh, in that sense, he and I didn't become friends. We didn't socialize in the most convenient way to get to know Ben. Uh, We met only in more formal settings. But every time I was with him, I felt cared for, cared about, And I also knew profoundly that he was the foundation of everything in my career, including getting me this tough-as-nails agent who quadrupled my income from fiction in a year and then took it on from there, who had a deal with foreign uh, agents that made it so that uh, I made half my income from abroad. My stuff was being translated from the beginning. Nobody gets that, but Barbara got it for me. So... Uh, I was well cared for by the two of them. And I'm sure that there were times, in fact, Barbara would often say, well, Ben says that they discussed what was going on with me. But Ben never took a role, uh, an open role in the agenting thing.
1: Larry Correa's third novel in his big epic fantasy trilogy, Destroyer of Worlds, appeared in 2020 and here is Larry Korea talking about his main character Ashok Vidal the implacable Ashok Vidal
3: uh main character is a guy named Ashok Vidal who is a uh, basically he's a uh magical roving law enforcement agent uh when the series opens he's the guy that goes around uh killing basically anybody who goes against the law. This, this guy who has burned villages for a living. He is kind of like, like an atheist,
1: atheist paladin, paladin. That Yes. Um, <laughs> that if you believe, you better watch out.
3: Yeah, Ashok is lawful, lawful.
1: <laughs>
3: and uh, that's when we first meet him. But what happens is this, as the story unfolds, uh, it turns out there's a lot of things going on that uh, the truth has been kept from him. He's not really who he thinks he is. Uh, he's been lied to. And uh, stuff just kind of spirals out of control from there. And that first book is Son of the Black Sword. Uh, his second book is House of Assassins. And third book now is Destroyer Worlds. Yeah.
1: And, and this one, he's uh, he's come a long way, <laughs> including oh, yeah. off of a meat hook.
3: <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I'm one of the only people I can think of who came up with a way to use a meat hook as a rel- as a religious symbol. <laughs>
1: Here is David Weber during an interview talking about Valkyrie Protocol with Jacob Hollow. This is David's reflection on what science fiction is and the writing of science fiction. It's a cool little excerpt that we thought you'd enjoy.
4: Part of the problem for any novel, but I think especially for science fiction, um, is that, as I've said many times, it's a collaboration between the writer and the reader because the reader is filling in huge amounts of information that the writer has not communicated specifically to them. That's one of the strengths of science fiction. One of the weaknesses of science fiction is that if somebody has decided that you're doing this a certain way, you're using a particular trope or whatever, that's how they read it, whether that's what you did or not. And then they judge the success or failure of the book on the basis of what they think you were trying to do, rather than what you were actually trying to do, and it's not your fault, and it's not really their fault. It's just a case of okay, they got off on to the wrong interpretation mm-hmm. of. That's, of a, what you're saying. that's
1: a problem with all genre things. Th- yeah, that it is. But bring expectations that other writers have created within them.
4: Well, I to... think th- I think that's true, but I think it's more true for science fiction. Because we are not working with a historical reality where, you know, this isn't something where somebody can say, well, what happened in 1945, you know, or, or, 19, or, or 2020, you know, what's the technologies because that's already all filled in. Okay, you know what it is, what it was, what it could be. Okay, with science fiction, we're inviting you into a world that hasn't happened yet. And therefore, there is a lot more room for you to misunderstand how it's happening.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
4: you don't have that concrete yardstick uh that you you can look at and there's and that,
1: there's problems with what's metaphorical and what's actually like yeah. you know happening
4: so. well i've I've used that uh deliberately in the past, for example in the honor harrington books uh the the tendency of people to fill in the blanks okay I convinced i'm sure 99 percent of my reading readers that the people's republic of haven was france by naming somebody robert Rob, Rob rob s pierre and giving them the tennis court oath and the whole nine yards and the whole time i was doing that i was doing it deliberately to keep them from realizing that particular uh original form of government was built on a totally different model that I was going to restore at the end. I kept everybody expecting Napoleon to ride in on his white horse and become emperor. And instead, what I was bringing up on the other side here was the reformer who was going to restore the previous government. And one way I kept people from realizing who the reformer was, was by keeping them from looking for one at all. They were looking for Napoleon. So,
1: so you, could, you were know, playing four-dimensional meta <laughs> Genre chess with the reader. I don't
2: understand why people.
1: Or their own amusement.
2: (laughs) But
4: uh, yeah, it's um, the art of storytelling is in communicating your vision strongly enough that the vision of your audience works. Movies, uh, playwrights, you know, they're dealing with a whole different spectrum of the information that they can present. It's the difference between, between radio and television. Okay. Uh, except that in uh, non audiobook literary fiction, you have to even provide the voice for each character. Okay. That's how completely the, the, the reader has to be involved in the process. Um, and I think that successful storytelling requires you to be aware that that's how it works. Um, that's why I think that the pacing of sentences is so important. Why I think punctuation is so important. Verb choice is so important. Because that's how you shape what your reader is perceiving how they, you, you communicate yeah. the energy in the scene, the whole nine yards.
1: You're uh, allowing them to create the stage in their mind and the action and the characters. You have to, um, because they have to put the show on for themselves.
4: Yeah. And, it, and it's something that you can only learn really by doing. I think some people have a greater natural gift for it than others, but it's like, like Tony Weisskopf is fond of saying, you know, and she and I agreed on this, it's, it's like a physical skill you learn it by doing it. And one of the reasons I'm doing as many collaborations as I'm doing now is, you know, I tell people, they say, how did you learn to write? And I said, you know, how did you learn to walk? Because I'm not going all zen on them. What I'm saying is it's a similar process. You fall down a lot when you're learning to walk. And each time you do, you learn a little bit about keeping your balance, you get back up and you can walk a little better next time. It's the same way with writing. You know, you you write and some of it works and some of it doesn't. You learn from the mistakes and, and you keep going. Well, I've been doing that for a long, long time now.
1: Here is Sharon Lee and Steve Miller talking about Traders, Leap, and Alliance of Equals, which winds up a big story arc in their Leaden Universe series, which is much beloved and has been going on for many decades now.
5: Um, This is actually our... Homage to two characters who have been with us um, since we created the Liadin universe, and who appear first in the Crystal books, Luton Moonhawk. Um, it's our giving them a, a rest. They've been working a long, long time, a long time, a long time, and they they deserve they deserve peace. So this that was part of part of the importance of the book for so us. So
6: the po- portion a portion of it. We, we see we see online, and we see, particularly when we go to conventions, what we have literally had people come up to us and grab our arms or our hands and say, tell me it's not over. Tell me it's not <laughs> over. They don't want the series to be over. And, and frankly, we're having a lot of fun with it. And there are still portions of it that we haven't finished exploring. And then we know that we haven't done this part. We haven't done that part. Uh, but this book allowed us to bring several
5: New characters and characters new in,
6: and but at the same time, it allowed us to bring closure to a couple of long, a uh, couple of long lines. Uh, while the Department of the Interior uh, threads may not be over entirely, for the most part, they're going to have to be because the, the department has been has been solved. But at the same time, uh,
5: it's everything everything's done with the mop up. Uh, oh,
6: sh- but at the same time, once you've once you've solved that that doesn't mean that all the problems in the universe disappear and those other problems come up what do you do about what do you do about trade what do you do about the thing that's been unleashed in in uh, by valcon by saying you know if yes. you have a working artificial intelligence a, a working logic that well, is in is fact contributing sentient, to
5: society
6: that is in fact sentient
5: there are people
6: they are people and, Oops, and, is, so, and,
5: and I think Theo recognized that and said, Geez, that changes everything. What's he thinking? Oh, that it changes everything.
6: Um, and uh, so, like for
1: instance, Theo's sentient starship, uh, what's it? Yep. Bashimo, yeah, too, traitors,
5: traitor's leap and um, accepting the lance together. And they were one book at one point. We did you a favor by unwinding them and making them two books instead of one three hundred thousand word book.
6: Yeah, it would have been a three hundred thousand word book. <laughs> um, um,
5: with these two books, we've kind of finally finished the agent of change, the agent of change arc. Um, and while the the series, the universe goes on, there are more, more and newer pathways to take. Now we've solved the old problem.
1: We hope you enjoyed our excerpts from the last about six months of Bain Free Radio Hour podcast interviews. And we'll be back next week with a new interview on a great new Bain book. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization, but the bureaucratic Mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor.
0: George Benton Tower, City of Old Chicago, Old Earth, Sol System. And Kingsford says he couldn't do anything about it, Malachi Abruzzi demanded. Not one friggin' thing. Heckle had accepted Harrington's terms before Kingsford even knew what they were, Inakenty Kolokoltsov said flatly. He sat back in his chair, smelling the panic in the palatial conference room, and his expression was grim. For that matter, he says that even if he'd known and been able to order Heckel to reject them, he wouldn't have, not after her demonstration. And not, he acknowledged to himself, after seeing the record of Harrington's icy delivery of those terms. Kingsford hadn't commented directly on that part of his reasoning, but Kolokoltsov had viewed the recording himself, and the way she'd spoken, the look in those almond eyes had frozen him to the marrow, He'd always thought of Brutzi's efforts to demonize Honor Alexander Harrington were ludicrous. His propagandists had picked up on every allegation the People's Republic of Haven had ever made against her, from Basilisk Station on, to portray her as some out-of-control murderess in their bid to undermine the woman's towering reputation. Now he wasn't so certain they'd been lying after all. The woman in that calm message had wanted Heckle to reject her terms, to fight, to give her an excuse. And that's who's just taken out the biggest, most powerful naval base in the entire Solarian League without us so much as scratching her paint. The thought was terrifying, because at that moment, the woman who'd done that was only 15 light minutes from where he and his colleague sat. And if anything in the galaxy was sure, it was that she'd soon be much closer. Well, why isn't he doing something to kick her arse back out of the system, Abruzzi said, as if he'd been listening to Kolokoltsov's thoughts. Maybe he couldn't stop the gutless bastard from rolling over for her out at Ganymede, but why the hell is he just sitting on his own arse now? Because going after her on her terms would be a friggin' disaster. Kolokoltsov's eyebrows rose in surprise and all eyes turned to Nathan McCartney as he answered Abruzzi's question. The permanent senior undersecretary of the interior glared at his usual ally and shook his head with an obvious disgust, whose strength, Kolokoltsov was privately confident, owed quite a bit to his own sense of panic. Why? Abruzzi shot back, chin-jutting aggressively. Because she left less than 10% of her fleet to hold Ganymede. McCartney's tone was flat. The other 90%, and probably 99% of her firepower, is parked two light minutes outside the hyper limit. That means she can pop into hyper anytime she wants to, like any time she sees him coming at her. All she has to do is sit there, wait for him to head her direction, and then rip his arse off with those fucking long-range missiles of hers. And he can't even touch her, because she can translate out before anything he fires at her gets there. Abruzzi glared at him, fists clenched on the tabletop. But there really wasn't much he could say in response. And McCartney hadn't even added that at her current range, Harrington was four light minutes closer to old Earth than she'd been to Ganymede when she'd fired on it. If she chose to unleash those fucking long-range missiles on the inner system, there was nothing she couldn't destroy without ever crossing the limit. The only thing that could possibly stay her hand was the possibility of mega casualties among the Sol System's civilians. And remembering the ice in those brown eyes? Kolokoltsov's own eyes strayed to the time display. Twelve hours. Naval Station Ganymede had surrendered 12 hours ago, and she had yet to say a single word to anyone on Old Earth. The long, drawn-out wait clawed at his nerves, exactly as she undoubtedly meant for it to, and it was obvious she was in no hurry to break her silence. He didn't expect to like it when she finally did. HMS Imperator Sol System The timer on her Unilink pinged, and Honor Alexander Harrington closed the book she'd been pretending to read. She glanced automatically at the bulkhead chrono, then inhaled and ran one gentle hand down the spine of the tree cat huddled in her lap. Nimitz looked up at her, then rose on his true feet to wrap his arms around her neck and press his muzzle against the live nerves of her right cheek. He stayed that way for a long, still moment, clinging to her physically almost as tightly as they clung to one another's mind glows, and she closed her eyes as she hugged him back. Then she stood, climbing out of the comfortable couch, and lifted him, swinging him around to his proper place upon her shoulder. It was time, she thought. Grand Fleet had been in the Sol system for exactly 36 hours, and it was time. The cabin smart wall was configured to show the master plot, and her eyes sought out the green icon which represented Naval Station Ganymede's current status as a friendly unit. Heckel had honored the terms of his surrender with scrupulous fidelity, and she wished, oh, how she wished he hadn't. The part of her which was still an admiral recognized the enormous prize he'd yielded to her intact, recognized the stupendous victory she'd accomplished without losing a single man or woman, knew the intelligence windfall from Ganymede alone would have made this operation utterly decisive, even if she'd accomplished nothing else. The admiral in her recognized that. The angel of death only resented it. She closed her eyes, fighting to balance those two conflicting imperatives, fighting to remember she wasn't here for herself or for Nimitz, but for her star nation, for the entire Grand Alliance, and for Beowulf, the killer corner of her soul whispered, for Beowulf. She looked across the cabin at her wedding picture once again, She walked across to it, reached out, and laid a hand upon it. She stood there, lips quivering, then leaned her forehead against it as a single tear leaked down her cheek. I'm sorry, she thought. I'm sorry I wasn't there to keep you alive, Hamish. Or you, Samantha. And I'm so sorry I killed you telling you about it, Emily. Another tear crept down her cheek, and she tasted its salt upon her lips. I'm sorry Nimitz and I will never see or hold or touch any of you ever again. I hope wherever you are, you can forgive us for that. And I'm sorry I can't even kill the people who killed you. God help me, I want the Sollies to give me a reason, give me an excuse to punish someone, anyone for it. And if they do, she chopped that thought off, made herself inhale deeply felt the sick hunger guttering along her nerves. If they gave her an excuse, she would take it. She would take it, and the killer in her soul would drown itself in the fiery elixir of their blood and her vengeance. She knew that. And even in her present state, she knew it was the one thing she must not do. But some things were simply more. She shook herself, leaned harder against the picture. Even if they give me a reason, she thought drearily, It won't be the ones who really killed you. They've taken even that away from us, because I'll be killing the wrong people. She straightened and caressed their faces, all three of those faces, and her own face hardened. But if they didn't plant those bombs, they damned well created the circumstances that let someone else do it, and there's a price for that. Oh, yes, there's a price, and if they give me an excuse to make that point crystal clear to them, I will, by God, do it. Because the one thing I promise all of you, I will collect every penny of that price if I have to burn this star system to the ground. She stood a moment longer, looking at the faces of her murdered love, tasting the bitter iron of that promise. Then she drew a deep, deep breath and turned away. The cabin hatch opened at her approach, and Major Hawk came to attention as she stepped out into the passage. He'd known Tobias Stimson for a long time, personally selected him as Hamish's armsman, and that made it personal for him too on so many levels. She tasted the same murderous determination radiating from him, knew there was no question what he wanted to happen next, and she nodded to him. Let's be about it, Spencer, she said. Central Command Center, Admiralty Building, City of Old Chicago, Old Earth, Sol System. Winston Kingsford arrived in the dimness of Central Command less than five minutes after his office comm pinged. Three of those minutes had been spent in the lift shafts, and he'd paused outside the CCC's entrance to catch his breath. No one needed him arriving obviously out of breath. Wouldn't do to look like I was panicking, now would it? Willis? Willis? he said as Admiral Jennings turned at his approach to face him. Sir, Jennings acknowledged. So she's begun to move, has she? Yes, sir. The chief of staff waved at the enormous holo display. She's taking her time about it, too. Kingsford looked at the display and nodded. Harrington's enormous wall of battle was headed directly towards the hyperlimit at its closest approach to Old Earth. And as Jennings had said, She was advancing at a leisurely 300 gravities. At that rate, it would take over an hour and a half for her to actually cross it, assuming that was what she intended to do. And he felt confident that slow, deliberate approach was yet another silent message. She wants us to see her coming, to know she doesn't care if we see her coming. Every surviving warship in the Sol system had been gathered in Earth orbit, he had over 200 super dreadnoughts, backed by 400 battle cruisers, and the next best thing to a million pods of improved cataphracts, and his sensor platforms had kept her under a microscope 24 hours a day waiting for exactly this moment. He had enough firepower to shatter planets, been given as much warning, as much time to prepare for an attack as any system commander in history, and he knew she'd given him that time on purpose. HMS Imperator, Sol System. Anna watched her plot as her massive formation decelerated once again to rest relative to old Earth, and shoals of lax erupted from her carriers to form up about her wall of battle. She was exactly one light second inside the hyperlimit, 231,559,727 kilometers from the planet of humanity's birth, and her eyes were as bleak as her soul. In position, ma'am, Andrea Jarowalski said. Thank you, Andrea. Honor nodded, then turned her head, looked at Lieutenant Commander Brantley. Put me through, Harper. Central Command Center. Admiralty Building. City of Old Chicago. Old Earth. Sol System. Incoming transmission, sir, Commander Pamela Furman, the comm officer of the watch, announced, and Kingsford turned to face her. It was almost a relief to look away from the master plot. No, that wasn't accurate. It wasn't almost a relief to look away from that horde of crimson icons. Harrington remained outside his cataphract's powered envelope, and he wondered how many of the light codes spreading out about her super dreadnoughts represented missile pods, and how many of them were the infernally powered lacks O and I had finally gotten around to reporting to him. I assume it's Admiral Harrington, he said, and Furman nodded. Yes, sir, it is. Then I suppose you'd better put her on the main display, he said. He felt Jennings stir beside him and gave the chief of staff an ironic smile. Jennings might have a point. Perhaps this was the sort of message he ought to be taking in private, but he doubted it would make much difference in the end. Yes, sir, Furman said, but she also paused and he frowned. Is there a problem, Commander? He asked a bit coldly, and she inhaled. Sir, Admiral Harrington's contacting you through a comm relay less than 40,000 kilometers out. It's actually in a geosynchronous orbit above the Atlantic. Kingsford stiffened. Geosynchronous orbit? Should I assume we didn't know it was there? No, sir, we didn't. Furman's expression was as unhappy as any Kingsford had ever seen, but she met his eyes levelly. I see. Kingsford glanced at Jennings again, and the chief of staff's expression was even less happy than Furman's. And little wonder, the CNO thought, the fresh proof of the Manti's remote platform's ability to penetrate their sensors at will was chilling. But perhaps he should be grateful to Harrington for making that point yet again anything that inspired sanity and restraint on his part was probably a good thing. Go ahead and put her through, Commander, he said levelly. Yes, sir. Kingsford tucked his hands behind him and turned back to the main communications display as it came alive, and a face he knew from hundreds of megabytes of intelligence analyses looked out of it. Good afternoon, Admiral Harrington, he said. Good afternoon, Admiral Kingsford, she replied 12 seconds later. He wasn't really surprised. In fact, he'd expected it, which made the demonstration of the Mantis' FTL bandwidth no less galling to someone whose faster-than-light data transmission was still at least a full T-year from anything more advanced than the dots and dashes of old-fashioned Morse code. I've been rather expecting to hear from you, he said now. I imagine you have. Her smile was cold and so thin he could have shaved with it. And since you have, I'll get straight to the point. You have 96 hours to stand down your fleet, scuttle every warship in the star system, blow your missile pods in orbit, and evacuate your deep space infrastructure. All your deep space infrastructure. Someone behind Kingsford inhaled sharply, and he felt his own expression tighten, but Harrington's frozen eyes never even flickered. And at the end of those 96 hours, he heard himself ask. I think you know the answer to that question. Her soprano was hard as battle steel. You set the ground rules with Operation Buccaneer and Parthian shot. The Grand Alliance is prepared to assume that since no one in the Solarian League has denounced Admiral Hoidugyozo or Admiral Gogunov's actions at Hypatia, the League is equally prepared to receive the same treatment. Except for the minor difference that I'm giving you long enough, you really can save your civilians' lives. And after we abandon our responsibility to protect Solarian lives and property? Why, at that point, I destroy it, she said, as if it were the most reasonable thing in the world. Unlike your actions at Cachalot and some other star systems I could mention. For an instant, that icy control slipped, and her eyes flashed with pure murderous fire. I'll leave your orbital habitats, even the ones with some industrial capacity. Not the ones which are primarily industrial, of course, intact. I'll even leave old Earth's and Mars's orbital power collectors intact, which is more than you did in Buccaneer. But the rest of it goes, Admiral Kingsford, every bit of it. Her eyes bored into him and his hands fisted behind his back. You're not serious, he said. Oh, On the contrary, I'm deadly serious, she replied, and her voice had turned soft, almost caressing. And if you're unwilling to destroy your warships yourself, I'll take care of that for you, too. You can just leave them where they are, and I'll take them out from here. Or you can come out to meet me. Unlike the Solarian League, the Grand Alliance has no interest in massacring millions of civilians. But you and your ships, Admiral Kingsford... The gallant personnel of the Solarian League Navy are another matter entirely. So please, leave orbit and come out to meet me. There's nothing you could do that would make my people happier. Her eyes bored into him, daring him, begging him to take up her challenge, to take his ships out where she could kill every one of them without endangering a single civilian life. He saw that challenge, understood it perfectly, and something shriveled inside him. Twenty brittle seconds stretched out. Then her nostrils flared with what might have been contempt or might have been disappointment when she recognized his refusal to take up that iron gauge. I allowed Admiral Heckle to use his available warships to evacuate his people, that soprano sword said then, and I'm prepared to allow you to do the same, as long as every one of them is destroyed within 96 hours. Is that understood, Admiral Kingsford, or do I need to go over it again? Rage wrestled with fear deep within him, but he made himself stand very still. He drew a deep breath, faced the calm display. I believe I understood you the first time, Admiral, he said coldly. In that case, I'll be in touch again 96 hours from now. Unless, of course, you haven't complied with my requirements and destroyed your fleet within that window. In that case, Admiral Kingsford, you won't hear a single thing from me. That final liquid helium promise went through him like a dagger, and then, before he could even think about a response, the display went blank. He stood very still, looking at the huge featureless screen, then turned his head to look at Commander Furman. Contact Permanent Senior Undersecretary Kolokoltsov, he told her. I'll be in my briefing room. As soon as you reach him, put him through to my comm there. George Benton Tower, City of Old Chicago, Old Earth, Sol System. What do you mean you won't go out and fight? Malachi Abruzzi barked. He sat with the rest of the mandarins in Inokenti Kolokoltsov's secure communications room, glaring at Winston Kingsford's face on the main display. Kolokoltsov had delayed accepting Kingsford's communications request until the others could join him. It hadn't taken very long since none of them had ventured far from their George Benton offices in the day and a half since Harrington had arrived. He'd wanted to avoid anyone's thinking he'd cut some sort of private understanding with Kingsford. And, he admitted, he'd wanted to spread the responsibility for any decision he made as broadly as possible. He was coming to the conclusion, rapidly, that that had been a mistake. I mean, there are over 1.3 million men and women on my ships of the Wall alone, Mr. Permanent Senior Undersecretary, and that I have no intention of seeing them butchered for absolutely nothing, Kingsford said now, his flat voice a cold and level contrast to Abruzzi's quivering fury. Then why the hell do we even have a navy? Abruzzi spat. Why, you have a navy to do all those dirty little jobs you need done in the protectorates. Nathan McCartney's face went as dark and congested, as outraged as Abruzzi's, but Kingsford wasn't done. You have a navy you and your colleagues sent into a war it can't win. You even have a navy you can order to completely destroy the economies of completely neutral star nations. But you don't have a navy, so I can murder the men and women under my command because you don't have a friggin' clue what else to do. Does that answer your question, Mr. Permanent Senior Undersecretary? Then we'll fucking remove you from command and put someone with some guts into it, Abruzzi snarled. And then we'll put you in front of a friggin' court-martial and shoot your sorry arse for cowardice in the face of the enemy. That's your option, Kingsford said. And if that's what you want to do, you go right ahead. But you're not going to find another admiral who will do what you want. The Navy's done dying just because the lot of you have been too damned stupid and too damned arrogant to listen to the people who have been trying to get you to stop this goddamned war you started, you, not them, since before it even began. They stared at him, all of them in shock, and he looked back with a face like iron. The silence lingered for several seconds. I've already begun the evacuations, he told them then. And while I was waiting for you to get around to accepting my comm request, I accepted Harrington's offer to use the Navy to get everyone out and promised to destroy every one of my ships within her time limit. He shrugged ever so slightly while they gaped at him. The first evacuee should be arriving dirtside within a half hour or so. And another thing I did while waiting for you to get around to answering me was to contact the gendarmerie. Their people will assist my Marines in organizing the traffic flow and keeping it moving. I suggest you and the local civilian authorities organize transportation to move the evacuees to other destinations before the spaceports turn into total chaos. As for me, right now, overseeing that evacuation is rather more important than continuing this conversation. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. The display went blank. The Mandarin sat staring at one another in silence.
1: That was another entry in the complete serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast-themed composer Ruth Judkowitz and a hearty hi-ho Silverado with seven inch lift and a tennis ball equipped whip on the back whose undulations create disturbances in the historic timeline itself plus thanks and gratitude for you our listeners please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars